Turn with me this morning to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 12 and 13 this morning. And as you turn there, you know there are some so-called ministers of the gospel that use this phrase, you cannot or you shall not touch the Lord's anointed. And what they're doing is they're pulling from language in the Old Testament, uh, especially uh, what David says of King Saul, when King Saul is running after him to murder him, David recognizes that even though Saul is being unjust and doing wicked things, that he is still yet the one that God has anointed as king over the people. And so the idea that what, what David says is, uh, I can't kill him. It's not my place to kill him. God will deal with him. My place is to uh, is to be faithful to God. And so uh, some so-called ministers of the gospel use this language today and use it in such a way as to indicate that nobody can disagree with them or nobody can investigate them because they are God's anointed, uh, sometimes what they use the words pastor or maybe apostle, bishop, or other uh, sometimes biblical language. They use it to insulate themselves from disagreement and consequence, to hide abuse and silence their opponents and further their harmful practices. Such ministers will experience the judgment of God. They will experience God's judgment, much as King Saul did. Ministers are men, after all, and they are subject to the sinfulness of the flesh as much as any other Christian. And so as we think of pastors this morning, and we'll see why we're talking about this at the outset, is because we come to the scripture and we find a command to the church about how they should uh, interact with or how they should treat their pastor. And so uh, pastors are to be men of good character, and the church should recognize such men and esteem them and Hold them worthy of remembering. And so we have to wrestle with the scripture this morning. That's what I'm asking us to do, is to wrestle with the scripture, is how can we put these two things up next to each other, and what are we to do? What about those cases of of bad and evil men causing abuse within a church? And what about those good and faithful ministers and, and those who do not abuse their authority? So what I want us to see this morning is that the church's duty is honoring the gospel laborer and living at peace. And so let's come to our passage and let us see what Paul is asking us to remember and strive for. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. So, right, Paul, remember, has written this letter, and it is a letter of love. It is a letter of love to this church at Thessalonica. He has written out of his great love for them and his desire to see them stand firm in the faith. He wants to see them established, rooted, and growing in grace. 
We come to our passage this morning and uh, Paul has just finished encouraging the church to encourage the church to that reality of the coming day of the Lord and the sure joining of all believers with Jesus. And so I'm going to say that again just because I know I wrote it confusingly and I said it confusingly. Paul is writing just before this, encouraging the church to encourage the church. Right? He's encouraging the the Christians in Thessalonica to encourage one another about the coming day of the Lord. And that everybody uh, who is in Christ, whether dead or alive, will at the day of the Lord join him in the air and be with him forever. And now in this last section of this letter of love, Paul begins to offer some general instructions to the church, uh, things that they are to attend to. And so there's a couple of things as we begin to study through this final portion of this letter, I want us to understand. It doesn't appear that there are any specific issues within the congregation that he's trying to address. And what I mean by that is these seem to be very general instructions. And as they are general instructions, it would behoove us to pay even closer attention to them. And why I say that is because sometimes Paul writes a very particular solution to a particular problem that a particular church has, right? It's a, it's a particularity there. Um, other times, however, he here is dealing with just general instructions to the church. And so it seems that way, right? So this is not a church under the throes of problem, but he wants to head off any problems before they become one. The second thing I want us to note as we go through this last section is that it seems that these are issues, as, as one commentator put it, these are issues of fellowship. So these are directions, commands, encouragements about the fellowship of the church, the fellowship amidst the church, how we interact and relate to one another within the church and indeed without outside of the church, without the church. So they touch on issues of relationship. So let's turn to our passage today. And first I want us to see that we are to esteem the gospel laborer, esteem the gospel laborer. And look at that in verses 12 to the first part of uh, verse 13. And he says, I'll read that again. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So Paul and the missionaries asked the church regarding something about the leaders in their midst. And let me go ahead and say at the outset, this is a very strange passage for me to preach. It's a, I'm a bit self-conscious about what I'm saying. So you might hear me at times abstract myself out of it. Because what I want you to hear is not, I'm not asking you this morning about what you should do for me. I'm asking you this morning to consider what the scripture says you are to do for those who work uh, in gospel ministry. Okay, understand that. So if you hear me speak in the third person, that's probably why. That or I'm crazy, because sometimes Dale is crazy. Um, but here you go. Paul asks here of the church in, the, in these verses, right, two things. And he's asking them about a specific portion of the church, a specific subset of the church. So before we talk about what he's asking, I want us to make sure we understand who he's talking about. So let's see who he is talking about. He says, those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. 
So who is this? Who does that kind of work? Elders or pastors, right? Those who labor. So he says, first off, let's see this description of these he's talking about, right? He says, those who labor, those who work among you. The pastor is one who works, who serves the church. The pastor is ultimately an under, an under shepherd. They follow the example set by the good shepherd, Jesus, right? We could look at John 13, 12 to 16, and it's a, uh, probably a familiar passage to us out of John 13, verses 12 to 16. The scripture says, When he, that is Jesus, had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, washed the feet of his disciples. And again, just so we understand the cultural context of this, uh, even in our culture, that would be a weird thing to do. But in Jewish culture at this time, it was a thing that was reserved for the lowest in society. It was reserved for the servant of the house. It was reserved of those of lesser class because the feet, were disgusting, dirty things. They didn't have closed-toed shoes and socks, right? They wore sandals. They didn't have paved roads always, so you had dust and dirt and mud and everything else, muck. Not only that, but they also had a lot of animals. So they got around via animals, right? Uh, so animals do certain things wherever they are at, whenever they feel the need to do it, right? So, so you would be covered and coated in dust and mud and dirt and muck and, and, and dung, right? So all these things. So it was a gross thing. So when you entered a house, often there would be a servant, you know, in a, in a wealthier house, there would be a servant who was, whose job it was to wash the feet of the guests and to clean them and, and refresh them, right? Because even if you were recently bathed your feet would still get dirty quickly so here we have our savior then right in john 13 here we have our savior the one who created feet stooping down and washing them the lord jesus christ washed the feet of his disciples and then immediately applied the lesson for them to make sure they didn't miss it because think about it this way. The disciples who would become the apostles, right? The, the, the name, the kind of, uh, signifier change there of their mission, their goal. The disciple being a student, the apostle being one sent. The apostles could have thought to themselves, I'm pretty cool. I was a disciple of Jesus. You need to bow down and pay attention to me. And indeed, we know that the disciples struggled this with this issue when Jesus was still around. Uh, one of the disciples' mothers even coming up and saying, uh, could you put my boys in the place of honor? Could you give them honor and authority and power? 
Right? And there's this argument among themselves about who is the greatest. So they needed to be taught a lesson here. Jesus comes to serve, not to be served. He's the creator. If there's anyone as, as king, he has the right to be served, and that, that's not what he did. Every Christian is called to this loving service towards one another. This really is countercultural too, if we think about this, right? Because in our culture, what we so often think of is in terms of how can I be benefited? When we talk about our friendships, right? How does this friendship benefit me? How does this relationship benefit me? How am I going to be enlarged by it? We're told to consider the value of our friendships. We're told to consider the value of the relationships that we have um, in such ways such as you are the sum of the five people you hang around with the most. And so if you want to be smart, hang around with five other really smart people and they're going to bring you up to their level. But if you hang around with five dumb people, they're going to bring you down to their level, right? So, so it's again, it's this make this value estimation about who the people you're going to be around. If you want to be successful, surround yourself with other successful people and suddenly you'll be raised up, right? We're told to consider the value of our relationships. How will they serve us? The Christian isn't called to that kind of language. Right? We don't hear this call to serve one another in our culture. We don't hear the call to consider others as more significant than ourselves. Jesus says, serve one another. And he told his disciples that they ought to pour out their lives in service to others, not self. And this is the call of every Christian, but especially it is the call of the pastor. Pastors are to be known by their labor, by their work. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So firstly, those who labor. That we're talking about those who work in the church. And then he says, secondly, I want us to see those who are over you in the Lord. Those who are over you in the Lord. Secondly, we see this about those who hold some leadership over the church. These are the ones who are called to oversee the church. And again, unless we uh, miss our definition, what is the church? The better way to ask that question is, who is the church, right? The church is the people of God, not a building, not a time of the week, although we often use the language that way. Paul talks about it in this manner to his faithful ministry partner, Timothy, who we have seen in this letter. In 1 Timothy 3, 1, he says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Or Peter says this in 1 Peter 5, 2, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So the under-shepherd, the pastor, the elder, exercises oversight. He watches over the flock of God that is among them. And again, the idea of the pastor that Paul is talking about here is countercultural. 
especially in our culture, we are told to eschew authority, to get rid of authority. That authority is bad. To have somebody over you is is a bad thing. You are your own man or woman. Stand up for yourself. Listen to none and do what you want. Follow your heart, right, is the Disney way to say that. And even what I spoke about at the start, there are those uh, so-called ministers who claim for themselves divine protection in everything that they do, and they are bad. They are often abusive. They're misleading, and they should be ignored, called out, and warned off. The problem is that we in our culture have overreacted to the bad And rather than deal with the bad examples as we should, we have just said, let's throw out all authority. Let's have no authority because surely that's better than bad authority. Well, here's the problem with that. God is the ultimate authority. So to say that we're going to just throw out authority, we're throwing out God and we're throwing out godly established authority. God-given authority. For instance, we could turn to Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. This may not be something that we want to hear, but is something that the Scripture says and we need to hear. Romans 13, 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. That's something we don't like to hear, right? Submit to the governing authorities. Pay tax to those whom taxes owed. Submit to the governing authorities. Not to the extent of a following after abuse, or not to the extent of obeying sin. But God even institutes here secular authorities, and he gives the church authorities to oversee us. Because we, we need authority. We need good authority. And elders, pastors are a gift of grace to the church. But we also need to be wise in our choice of elders, pastors. So how do we deal with the issue of bad authority? It takes wisdom and consideration uh, on our part. Too often, too often pastors are chosen for their ability and not their character. And if we were given the choice between Uh, two men to lead us, we would go to the one who has better preaching than the one that has better character, right? Too often we have made those choices in our churches is to give up a character because we see great ability. Part of the difficulty of that too, by the way, is resulting from the way that we choose pastors. Uh, If we choose pastors the same way that we would in our business Uh, choose people to work under us, maybe that's the reason why we have the problem. We have no time to get to know their character. The only thing we can rely upon is their ability. Or at least we don't do our due diligence uh, as to their character. Uh, Titus 1, 5-9 tells us, Paul writing to his uh, protege Titus says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now listen to what Paul says to Titus 
I've given you the task of appointing elders. What does Paul say is the most important thing for Titus to consider? Listen to what he says. Verse 6 of chapter 1 of Titus. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Paul doesn't say, Titus, what I want you to look for is those who have the best oratory ability. I want you to look for those who have the best, uh, who are charismatic and have the ability to really grab attention. It's not the categories he uses, right? He says, appoint elders and make sure they have good character. Make sure they're not a drunkard. Make sure they're a lover of good. And so this is something that we need to consider whenever we are calling a pastor or an elder. Not can they preach, although that is a consideration. What they preach is essential. But we must also consider their character. We have to trust our pastors that they are looking out for our good. And if we know they are of good character, that's easier for us to instill that trust in them. We need to see that they are here to serve, not be served. That they're here to watch over our souls. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, again, we don't like maybe this language in our culture. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So this is who Paul is talking about. He's talking about those who labor, those who work, those who oversee, those who are watching over the flock as ones who will give an account. And then he also gives the third um Third kind of qualifier of what is a minister, what is a pastor, right? Those who admonish you. Those who admonish you. This last identifier here often means to warn. It's to give instruction. And normally it's in a warning sense. And so this is what pastors do, right? When they preach and teach is they speak God's word with the aim of getting our attention to understand what God says and to be obedient to it. My job is to warn you. Warn you about what will happen if you don't obey God. And understand that there is an eternal punishment there. Right? If you have a life consistent of disobedience to God, a life that is marked by disobedience to God, you never see obedience, you never see improvement to obedience. Understand this. This is the warning for you. You will suffer the eternal punishment of God. But if you're in Christ, if you believe, if there is some trajectory of obedience, understand too that disobedience still comes with consequence. God will discipline you. He will bring his uh, rod of discipline upon you. And it will be painful. 
but he does it to get your attention. Paul says in Colossians 1.28, Him, that is Jesus Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That is the goal of the pastor, to see you presented mature in Christ. And so the pastor warns, he points out the dangers in this world, right? The deception of sin, the wiles of the evil one, so that you can stand firm in your faith to the end. So Paul says of pastors that these are the ones that labor, admonish, oversee you. These are the one whom he is talking about when he gives this instruction. And so we answered who he's talking about. Now let's look at what he says to do. There are two things that he gives us. The first is, he says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those. Respect. This is the way that the ESV renders it. But the Greek uh, the Greek word for this is predominantly translated, no. And actually, if you look at the King James Version, it says, uh, to know them uh, who labor, and on and on, right? So it says to know. It can also mean to remember. So when we're talking about what, what Paul is saying here, he's saying, know them, remember them, respect them. He's saying there should be some recognition. They shouldn't be forgotten. They should be looked after. All right, going back to 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So honor there in 1 Timothy is talking about financial care of the pastor. There's a connection being made back to the Levitical priesthood in this as well. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians, you could look back to our discussion on chapter 2, verse 9, uh, which was back on November 7th. We looked at that, November 7th, 2021. So for the faithful minister, the church is to remember them, consider them, not neglect their benefit or blessing. So how do we remember our pastors? Here's one of the simplest ways that we can do it. We pray for them. We pray for them. Um, as much as you need prayer in your life, the pastor needs prayer too. And as I said at the outset, ministers are still men. We pray for them. We pay them. We listen to them. We heed their warnings. We imitate them. We'd speak well of them. We encourage them. We remember them. Respect them. That's what he's saying, to respect them. And then he goes on in verse 13, and he gives us the second, uh, the second thing that he wants us to do, right? He says, to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And in case you think I'm overstating some of those things that I just mentioned, we look at what Paul says here, and he says, esteem them very highly in love. And again, this word to esteem means something very similar to respect. And Paul modifies this respect with love. Right? He says, regard them very highly in love. Why? Because they are laboring for your spiritual benefit. The work they do is to benefit you, church member, or at least that is, again, the call of the pastor. 
We have to distinguish, though, between a bad pastor and a good and faithful one, because the bad pastor is often just there to serve himself, and God will judge such men. I mean, in case you uh, need encouragement about that, you could look, for instance, at Ezekiel 34. And that is something that in my seminary classes we actually had to go through, my pastoral uh, ministry class, and had to consider what God says in Ezekiel 34. And, and I just want to read two verses for you, 9 and 10 of that, but the uh, the majority of the chapter talks about that, and so you can go and, and look at that. But Ezekiel 34, 9 and 10 says, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. So right to the people of Israel, to those who were in a spiritual authority over the people of Israel, who should have been shepherding them, watching over them, caring for them, seeking their their spiritual benefit, they were instead feeding themselves. They were enlarging themselves at the expense of the sheep. He says, I I want to, I'm going to remove them from your mouth as though, right, they were even eating the sheep. And so the pastor ought to walk in fear before God, knowing that his work will be judged. But of the good pastor, it says in 1 Peter 5, 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So Paul says that the church should regard them beyond measure in love, because of their work, because the work they do is for your benefit. They're working for you. The pastor who is taken care of by his congregation will spend himself for the benefit of the congregation. The pastor who is ill taken care of will, by necessity, have to attend himself to other cares. So it is for your benefit to take care of your pastor. Calvin says as much in commenting on this passage Uh, So listen to this from, from Calvin as he comments. He says, God also, on just grounds, inflicts vengeance upon the world inasmuch as he deprives it of good ministers to whom it is ungrateful. Hence it is not so much for the advantage of ministers as of the whole church that those who faithfully preside over it should be held in esteem. What Calvin basically says there, right? He says, God judges the world by depriving it of good ministers because they fail to be grateful for them. We might even say that God judges churches by failing to take care of faithful ministers in their midst, moving them to other places in which they can be well taken care of. And so, church, when you call an elder or pastor over you, consider their character. Who are they? Not just what do they do. But who are they? Consider their way of life. But also consider how are you going to have regard for them? How are you going to love them? How are you going to care for them as they care for you? And this is not merely a suggestion for you to consider, but a matter of your faithfulness before God, right? This is the scripture saying this. Will you heed this portion of scripture or will you throw it out because it's inconvenient? 
That's often what we have to ask of any portion of the scripture we read, right? So Paul says to esteem the gospel labor, and he also says be the peaceful church. And so look at that secondly this morning. Be the peaceful church. The end of verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. And this may seem like a strange uh, command up abutted next to the command about taking care of uh, the elders, esteeming the elders, but this encouragement provides a good pivot point. And as he continues on in the rest of the passage, he talks about our interaction, right? Our relations between um, each other in the church. The reality is, as we apply it to what we have just thought about in, uh, in esteeming the gospel laborer, is that it is easy for the church to be contentious with its leaders. It's, it's easy for the church to become contentious with its pastor. Because where is it that the pastor uh, who makes a decision at some point that we disagree with? Right? Where is it that uh, there will be a decision made that we won't agree with, we won't like, uh, we will might be offended by? And indeed, in the familiar nature of the church, there's often more emotions weighted behind each decision that is made. Uh, for instance, a pastor can cut some program that no longer serves the church well. And it is as though that pastor murdered our very own mother. Right? Don't you know, Granny Smith started that ministry and she held it together with two shoestrings and, uh, you know, a bucket of pennies. And you're dishonoring her memory by cutting that program. You, you, it's like you killed grandma. Right? The pastor could have a great scriptural basis for making such a decision. It could be that the ministry is no longer uh, viable. There's nobody to lead it. There's nobody to interact with it. There's no need for it. But it doesn't matter. So we can see how easy it is for contention and anger to rise in the church. So there is a need for us to see and be commanded to be at peace among ourselves. Not only the leaders, but again, he'll pivot in the next verse uh, to talk about how we are to interact with weaker members of the, of the fellowship, how we're to interact and encourage and instruct and admonish those who are not spiritually mature. And so we need to be at peace among ourselves because contention and anger can rise when we're dealing with immaturity. Peace is antithetical to selfishness. And so, in other words, peace is often an affront to what we really want. Look at our culture. Again, this is a command that we need all the more even in our cultural day today, right? Would you describe our culture as one of peace? Is the default response in our culture peacemaking? No, not by a long shot. Uh, I've remarked upon this before, but it is amazing to me. It, it flabbergasts me, to use an old-timey word there for you. It flabbergasts me how someone can do something that uh, other people disagree with, or they can say something that other people disagree with, and the first response is, I hate you, I hope you die, and I hope your whole family dies. That that's the response to it. It's not, I disagree with you, here's the reason why. It's, I hate you, I hope you die. 
I hope your inside, your intestines turn inside out and you die the most painful death possible. And you may think I'm overreacting to that or exaggerating to that, but no, that's really what happens. Ask anybody who's posted something amiss on Twitter and they'll tell you that the vitriol that comes their way is, is not peaceful, not peacemaking, but contention. This is not the way that it should be in the church. We are to be at peace among amongst ourselves even if we disagree with what is said or what is done. There are ways that we handle that, right? There are ways that we handle such disputes that honor God and anger and contention is not the way. Division is not the way. Peace is the way. And in case you think this command here is an outlier, you could look at Romans twelve eighteen. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Romans fourteen nineteen. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Or how about Second Corinthians thirteen eleven? Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Or how about what Jesus says in Mark nine fifty? Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So the opposite of peace is conflict. Conflict is easy. Peace, on the other hand, is difficult because it takes work. So leaders and members of a church need to be at peace, not to be a contentious sword, not to stir up division and strife, not to be a thorn in the side of the leader, not to... That's not to say not to raise issues, right? So do raise issues that need to be addressed. If there is abuse, it needs to be called out. If there is evil and sin, it needs to be addressed. And members and members of a church need to be at peace. So don't be a contentious sort. Don't stir up division and strife. Don't be a thorn in the side of your brother and sister in Christ. A church at peace is a church living out gospel reality. Colossians 3, 12-15 says, Listen to who you are to be. If you are in Christ, this is who you are to be. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, what are you to do? If you have a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. So put on the character of Christ Jesus, bear with one another, right? Forgive one another, even as God has forgiven you. Put on love, which creates harmony, right? Hate and anger, contention doesn't create peace, creates division, creates a breaking apart. Love creates harmony, a bringing together. Let Christ rule your heart. And again, understand that love indeed is essential to this. And we don't have the time this morning to unpack all of what it means to love one another in Christ. But we are called to it. 
One of my favorite verses I always go to, John 13, 34 to 35, where Jesus says, uh, and I'm not going to quote the whole thing. You can go look it up later because there's a new commandment for us. But he says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. The world will know that we are Christ's disciples by the way we love one another, by the way that there is peace ruling among us. Christian, love should mark all of your relationships, especially those in the church. Love calls you to stop looking after your own self-centered needs and consider the good of those around you. Or as it says in Philippians 2, 3-5, through 5, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So do you love others? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Will you live at peace? So Paul's request to the church is to remember those who labor for the gospel among them. These are those that God has especially set apart for the purpose of leading his people, for the benefit of his people. And Paul commends the church to consider such persons and esteem them in love because of their work. And further, he commands that there be relational peace within the church fellowship. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to better recognize the grace of God at work in one another. We all need encouragement, and that includes the pastor and the elder too. The labor of the faithful elder is the maturing of those who are in his charge. God has entrusted to him eternal souls to care for them, so don't think that this is a light thing. This is a high and costly calling Esteem them very highly in love that labor for your souls, brothers and sisters in Christ. And understand, again, I acknowledge, there are bad pastors out there. There are sinful men who masquerade as pastor. God will judge them. And we must call out abuse. We must flush out the wolves from the midst of the sheep. But we must also care for our elders. We must take care of them who work for our good. And so this is something we should bear in mind, especially in our culture of division and distrust, because we are too quick to live in animosity and anger with one another. But we are called to live at peace, to be at peace amongst ourselves. We're to have relational peace. And this is only possible when we are standing in the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. If we understand what Christ has done for us, it should make us quick to forgive and to move towards loving one another. But if you this morning think there is no one who deserves such respect, such honor, such love, and if you think peace is best left for other people, I would encourage you to really consider what the scripture says here. Because you're not disagreeing with man, you're disagreeing with God. And the evidence of such lovelessness in your heart may indeed be the evidence of your need for Christ Jesus. God, your creator, is clear. All who live in a disobedience to him and his word shall suffer the eternal consequence of their sin, death, and judgment. Yet there is one who came and bore the wrath of God for his people's sins, Jesus the Christ. 
Jesus came and through his work on the cross and resurrection from the grave opened the way for forgiveness. He made manifest the love of God. He brought with him peace, peace that enables us to have peace between God and man. But this peace, this love, this forgiveness is only for those who believe in him, who repent, who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus alone. So my call to you this morning is to turn to God, confess your sins, turn from them, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from the wrath to come. Then walk in that loving peace that befits a child of God. Let us pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the grace that you have shown into us. Father, we are grateful for those faithful men that we have had over us in the past of who have shepherded our souls, who have been concerned and prayed for us and taught us and instructed us that we may know your word, know who you are, know who we are, be warned from sin. Father, that we would be uh, mature in Christ, that we would be able to stand up and know your word, believe it and live it out. Father, we thank you for uh, those graces that you have shown unto us for those mercies that you have given unto us and father we pray uh, father we pray that if there is any animosity and anger within us towards others that you would reveal it that we may confess it and be at peace father that we would not strive against one another but we would come alongside one another that we would stir one another up to love and to good works, that we would encourage one another all the more as the day draws near to gather together to understand your word and to live in the hope that is to come. And Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit might be at work in those who have no peace. Father, those who are at enmity with you, those who are lost and dead in their sins, Father, we pray in this very moment that your Spirit might open their ears, open their eyes to see and behold your wondrous beauty, to see and understand Christ Jesus' sacrifice, that they would confess their need for Christ that they would confess the evil wickedness of their hearts and that they might have peace with you for all eternity to join you in the glories of heaven in the new heavens and the new earth to put on an incorruptible body, an immortal body and to worship you and give you the glory, do your name from now to the end of eternity. Oh, Father, do this work, we pray. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.